Yeah, I'm getting a haircut today, which I started going to this actual hairstylist because before I just went to the barber and and uh, I was getting, you know, those haircuts that every guy has. I mean, they call it the undercut, but it's not it's not really an undercut. I think it's more like a uh, like a tight fade on the side and, and your hair on top is a little longer. But I stopped that's doing called the that Richard because, Spencer, by the way. Yeah, no, that's exactly what happened. There was a uh, <laughs> white male friend of mine got, got that haircut. And then I realized, oh, God, that guy look, kind of looks like Richard Spencer. And then it's like, it's like, I had to renounce the haircut from, from then on. So now I'm just letting it grow longer and I'm just doing my own thing. Because I think this, this haircut's done. I Like, this style is over. Jess, what, what kind of... Do you like that hairstyle? No. For one <laughs> or did thing, you ever it, like it? Or No, I just, I just never liked it. Um, for what, like, a lot of guys have it. So I end up staring at a lot of guys' heads with that haircut. And I'm just wondering <laughs> about the mechanics of it. Like, it's almost this, like, perfect gradation. Anyway, then after haircut, I'm actually going to go see a movie. And Teen, I want you to talk about your movie pass theory. Because I, I think there's some merit to it. I do too. And I, I, I want to get it on record that you are like the first one, or among the first to say it. Okay, so my theory is that's, <clears throat> that movie pass is, is funded by the CIA. And the reason I think that is because, well, one, it's not actually that far-fetched. The CIA does have like a pretty, leg- like a pretty major uh, venture capital arm called InQtel. They're like the, you know, they're, they're behind a ton of companies like Palantir or whatever, all these data companies. And I think that the broad reason why we're, we, that would make sense is because the, the deep state, so to speak, I feel weird just saying that, but like the deep state, I think is worried that it, it just doesn't have any sort of control over American soft power anymore. Like they just, right now, Hollywood's in such disarray. That there's just, you know, there's just no political control or political connection with Hollywood anymore. And what MoviePass, I think, is trying to do is basically, instead of having, like, high-level, you know, relationships with producers and studios, you know, you know, um, you know, smoky, smoky room kind of thing, I think what they're doing now is let's just go buy uh, commercial influence. And they're out there beefing with AMC. Like they be the 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 one biggest beef they have is with AMC, which is actually owned by a Chinese company, Wanda, that has like really really tight connections with the Chinese Communist Party. And then the you know there's just a, if you think about it, it's just I'm just like why would someone willingly lose so much money on taking Americans out to movies for no reason? A teen, but though uh, watch yourself. We don't want to hear news. A local Brooklyn man goes missing after <laughs> after. Uh, <laughs> saying stuff yeah yeah nah, knowing I, I, them it's gonna be staged with something embarrassing too like oh did, did they have compromise on you found in autoerotic asphyxiation case <laughs> sort of yeah, yeah. <laughs> clear clear your browsing history team <laughs> escape from plan a things are deteriorating very rapidly at the moment in terms of the relationships between men and women is there sexual harassment in the workplace yes we don't know what the rules are. Like, what? here's a rule. Don't, don't How about no makeup in the workplace? I would like <laughs> Why should you wear makeup in the workplace? Isn't that sexually provocative? No. It's not? No. Well, what is it then? What's the purpose of makeup? Hey, what's up, everyone? This is Escape from Plan A, the Plan A podcast. And today we have me, Oxford, along with Teen. Hey. And Jess. Hey. Today we are going to talk about this book that came out last year, I believe. It's called Kill All Normies. And this is uh, just like a, a quick survey of the online culture that, that brought about a lot of things like Gamergate and Trump. And yeah, so we just want to use this as a launchpad to just discuss broader issues. So yeah, let's, but let's quickly uh, go over the book. Yeah, um, I, I forgot where I first heard about this book. Um, Andrea Nagel... Her name popped up. I guess it was in an article. Oh, no, sorry. It was on podcast. It was Chop, Chapo Trap House. And she was kind of, she just went on to talk about this book. And I was really interested because at that time I was, you know, like I was, I was closely following sort of like Asian American online spaces that are in many ways directly dis- like connected to or descended from the kinds of online spaces that Andrea Nagel was talking about in Kill All Normies with respect to the alt-right. Um, we're talking like 4chan culture, Reddit culture, things like that. And I was just really interested in the book because I thought that this was going to be 
this was directly influencing Asian American culture online. And I just wanted to get a better sense of, of what it was. So I found it really fascinating. Uh, not, not, not necessarily the best book in the world, but very, but I, she knows her stuff about what's happening online. What about you, Jess? I thought overall, I mean, she gave it very insightful. And I think she definitely, her strong points are in the, how detailed she was able to get in tracking like chronology, which I think is important in and of itself, just because of the nature of the internet. Everything happens so quickly and kind of takes on a life of its own so quickly. Sometimes it's hard to remember, you know, like there's a meme that, you know, if we, if we're all passing around a meme now, um, what it means now versus when it first got started, that entire history around it. So I think she did a really good, like, I, I mean, she spends that first chapter going through, uh, like around 2010, you know, the entire kind of online trajectory of 4chan, right? Starting with yeah. like like the Obama posters, you know, Coney 2012, and then, you know, Harambe and then ties it into uh, things that were ca- both the stuff that was ha- like getting gaining importance on these platforms and how it kind of interjected into wider society. Oh, yeah, I thought the book was a good survey. I think if you were anyone who, who was active on Reddit, um, just just reads the kind of online magazines that follow kind of like young people online. If you were on Reddit during the election, you knew about, you know, the Donald or even like Sanders for president and all the and, and knew that dynamic. It, a lot of it is just kind of like review. But I think if you are on the outside, especially because Nagel is actually Irish, I believe. So she's not American. So she's looking at this from like a foreign, um, like a PhD's perspective. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I'd say I would say that. I agree with all that. I think she's really she's really good at I think and it's an important book in that you want to lay down that record because it does happen so fast. And the details matter. Like the way that I don't know, it, it it's almost like um the psychological study of an archetype. It's not really to me about any like um it's not really to me about a movement. It's not really to me about saying that much something much larger about society or politics. I think it is a good way of giving of describing a certain psychological archetype that's emerging. I think alt right and alt light, so to speak, are sort of modern archetypes. And they're aided and abetted by not just these uh internet subcultures, but also reaction to them. So it, it's it's hard to even study them individually uh cuz there's everything's kind of in a stew. And everything is in is is a reaction to another thing, right? Like <clears throat> alt, alt, I think she made a great claim in saying that alt right identity was uh, it was in was a direct oppos- was it existed as the direct opposition to Tumblr feminism and and sort of like the extreme of the left. Yeah, one of one of her main points that she repeats several times is that there's really the, the main ideological core of this. I mean, one of them at least is just this desire to not it's like nonconformist. So what she's her whole point is. Um, this is what happens, I guess, when when like liberalism and progressivism get too accepted and it becomes the dominant force, then there's naturally going to be um, a reaction to it. And that's a, that's kind of what it is, which is why I think some people find them ideologically incoherent, which I think brings us to a good point. We can talk about just like what exactly powers the alt-right. Um, and a lot of people, I remember when the Audrey Lim. Uh, you know, alt-right Asian fetishism article com- came out. A lot of people, when they read something like that, always, and it just annoys me because I think it's just so surface level thinking. They're like, how can you have an Asian fetish when you're a white supremacist? You know, they, they think along those lines. And it's like, it's the alt-right has never really been about race purity. It's, it's more like race purity in service of like a male chauvinism. I remember on Reddit, there was some post, I don't know where I saw it, it might have been the Donald or like TRP or something. It had to do, I think maybe with that article or just something, and there were, some poster said, yeah, like, race purity is important, but if you had to choose, kind of like, anti-feminism is about that. So that's, that's their highest, I think, organizing principle, if you had to go with an ism. It's not really race purity. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's the only way to reconcile, um, why there would be such an influx of Asian people in the alt-right. Uh, it's not, Because race, it's not... It's a rallying cry for a subset of them. It's the most recognizable rallying cry, because we have a Wait, are you talking about for, Asian men or Asian women? Uh, women, yeah. So in particular... But, I mean, let's say the insertion of Asian-ness, right? How, why would that be in alignment with this nominally, like, white supremacist group, right? 
And the only way to reconcile that is that it's uh, it's not about race when we get to it. It's a, And I think this is uh, where we could, uh, I mean, tie in rising figures like Jordan B. Peterson, because he's not talking, he's not rallying people on race. He's He has rallied a lot of the same sorts of people that have rallied to the alt-right, namely white men, but it's not on the basis of race. It's a psychological gap that's being filled. And race happens to be one of the more identifiable and polarizing ways to rally this bunch of people to that rallies this bunch of people together just because we have known templates from uh you know the kkk etc so i i so i think i'm with you that it's whatever is going on race is a small component of it uh, I, maybe i wouldn't say small but i, I think it does get it can get subjugated because if you think about it in your day-to-day life it's relatively possible to stay clear of racial issues from from a personal level maybe it on an ideological level you you like fear the eradication of the white race but unless you actually have minorities moving into your neighborhood it could all be very um abstract whereas whereas dealing with gender that you pretty much can't avoid that in your in your day-to-day life so it could be a more immediate concern yeah i don't i don't agree i i mean i i i would be i'm immediately and, and, and I would say that what you're saying is consistent with the book. I think the book does lay out the case that the, the, the alt-right and the, this sort of youth reactionary phenomenon and the white na- – well, let's call – I mean, she doesn't use the word white nationalism, and she sa- or she does, but it's only like sort of a pertinent to the main thing, which is this gender divide. But I'm immediately suspicious, particularly when um, foreigners write narratives about American culture that, that sideline race because I think – Race is always there, and especially narratives that tend to suppress or hide the importance of it, I think, are in a way getting it wrong. I don't think that they're KKK-like. I don't think that the alt-right is out. I don't think they're motivated by hatred of black people, but I do think that they're motivated motivated by a hatred of, of racial liberalism. I do think that the fact that their ire is drawn against not just white feminists, but also men, like they call manginas, right? Like men who uh, embrace a sort of like multicultural elite, they call them as cocks, and they're actually the biggest enemy of the alt-right. And so what I think the alt-right is doing, in a way, it's a sort of racial retrenchment of whiteness. I feel like they think the, the concept or the 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 definition of white has gotten too broad and too meaningless and they're trying to draw it's a defensive kind of whiteness not an expansive form and they're trying to draw lines in the sand to say if you're out of here you could be you could be you know racially white phenotypically white but you've completely betrayed your race and i do think that it is a racial rallying cry more so than a you know a projection of racism Right. Because I don't fear the alt right. Like I don't it's not like the KKK or whatever or these active white white supremacist groups are going around lynching people. But I do feel like they're they 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 are centered around their own racial identity. I think that's front and center to what they are. I've asked this question several times because of in the wake of the Italian elections when a lot of the uh, non um, non establishment parties won. But uh, I want to ask a question. Do you think they would accept a more defined idea of whiteness, even if it meant them losing power. And I bring up the Italian election because I think of a lot of I think a lot of these European countries want to separate from the European Union. They want to maintain their cultural distinctness. But on some level, they must realize that like if you go get back from the EU, you're, you're like a country of like 40 million people. You don't have any natural resources. A lot of you don't really make anything anymore. You're just relying on tourism or some luxury goods. You can't possibly be a world power anymore. Do you think? Uh, using that as kind of like an analogy, do you think these alt-right guys, they kind of want their own little land in which they're the kings and whatever, even if it meant in the greater picture, they might not have as much influence over others? Or do you think they want it both ways? Which I think they want it both ways. There was that uh, that four hour long discussion or debate with Richard Spencer and Sargon and, and other key figures. Oh, God, uh, you watched that? I know Teen did. I don't know if you did. The two I of us it, did, yeah. I watched it three <laughs> times. That's how that's how oh interesting I found it. Yeah. And they talk about their vision of a white utopia, right? And but what's interesting is in that imagining of that white utopia, they're still imagining they're imagining that they will be the next, you know, uh superpower. That everything that is good about America now 
in terms of prestige, wealth, quality of life, all of that, and its dominance on the world stage will remain intact as they transition into a whites-only uh, utopia. So they, I think the draw of it is that fantasy that somehow they can just I they they don't want to accept difference. I think that's that's one of the rallying cries. I think of of the alt right, uh, trying to resist that call to be accepting, to tolerate difference, to tolerate uncomfortable points of view, etc. And this is the most this is the most visible like push way to push back against that. And they but they still want to be they still want all the privileges and the benefits. Even though if you think about it. If you consider who would be most likely to sign up for this whites-only utopia in the United States, um, if you let them have it and wait ten years, they are not going to be a superpower. It'll probably be like kind of like angry young white dudes. <laughs> it, I imagine it to and be a trailer much, park. I imagine it to be a trailer park. Uh, yeah, I mean, I could see like a lot of like suburban kids in it. But I, you know, I think I think that's important though because I don't think I don't think the people the white the kind of white people that are that are drawn to these politics are themselves they don't i don't think they see their own whiteness as being a pertinent to white power like i don't think that they're really empowered white people is what i'm saying and i think and these are the people that really really hate the term white privilege because in their own life they probably don't feel it they probably don't feel like they've really benefited from being white all that much so i don't i feel like they're really not they're they're not really that concerned about trading white hegemony which is a thing right they're not really they're not really interested in white hegemony or preserving it even though they don't want to talk about it but they for example are quite dovish in terms of their international outlook like they're they're very against the foreign wars are they would like to see the u.s pursue a more isolationist foreign policy right they they don't like the idea of america meddling in foreign countries affairs and they don't like the idea and i think that's i don't think that's a result of deep geopolitical thinking i think that is just the avatar uh, the the sort of like nationwide avatar for their own psyche which is i don't want white people getting all multicultural i don't want us i don't want us to be part of this multicultural mix and so for us i think we live in the big cities we see that you know there is a certain structure to the multicultural society of the big cities where there is still a white supremacy where white people still do remain up top in this sort of mixed hierarchy but these are the white people that aren't inside this hierarchy they don't feel the privilege of being within this larger american multicultural hierarchy and they just kind of they just kind of want that whole things that they're not a part of to go away because it's so powerful it's you know, up, up until and i think that's what trump's election was was basically a big fuck you to that sort of urban liberal elite pyramid structure that they that they find themselves on the outside of well then that kind of asks a question if they were welcomed if they were welcomed more into that structure would they still feel that way i think they would love to create their own version of that structure yes where they were on top of it of course they would and that i think explains their embrace of asian culture and asian women they're actually pro multicultural so long as they're on top and you know their asian fetish is very specific they like Japan. To them, Japan is a sort of like North Star of what they want their own society to be like, right? They love anime. They all vacation in Japan. Their dream would be to date or marry a Japanese woman. But Japan specifically, and I think the reason is that what the alt-right is, what the white nationalist mentality is, is really, if you look at the triumvirate of the pathos, the logos, and the ethos, right? Logos being sort of the, like the logical, the sort of... Um, empirical uh side of this ideology ethos being sort of the ethical and moral side of it then the pathos being just sort of like the emotional psychological side of it this is all pathos there's no logos or ethos to any of this stuff you can't justify it empirically and you can't justify it ethically but i think they look at japan to fill in that missing gap i think what they do is that look i have this feeling of white identity of white nationalism, of wanting to belong to, you know, my own people and not being subordinated to someone else. And I, above all, I don't want to see my own people be, you know, subordinating me below someone from another race, which I got to say it, you know, I, as, as bad as that sounds, I do understand that, you know, I don't think that this is, they're crazy for thinking this, 
Um, but it's all pathos and that's where it stops. It's that feeling and then it stops. And they feel there must be, there must be, therefore, an empirical and ethical justification for this feeling. But they can't, they can't arrive at it because it's not that, that's not how things work. Uh, so they look towards Japan to fill in those gaps and say, we have a wealthy society that, that functions, that has a great economy. That's the logos. They're a, you know, they're a just society. They're, they're, they're a liberal democracy as well. They're, they, you know, they, they're in many, they have low crime. They treat each other with respect. They value their culture. They value race. And no one would say that J Japanese are, well, I mean, some people would say. One way I look at, yeah. One way I look at the alt-right is I look at them as guys who weren't, who were a little too slow-footed. They couldn't adjust to the, the coming social changes fast enough to stay on top. Because sure. if you look at, yeah. if you look at like the, the progressive white guys, I mean, a lot of them are just shit, right? Like the male feminists or the, or the, like the, the ones who fetishize, you know, minor, minority women and, and they try to look good at that. Like those guys were, they, they knew like the, the, they could turn the corner better, uh, better than these guys. And now, these guys find themselves on on like below a certain status that they feel in uh they deserve to. They see some of their counterparts taking advantage of it, and and if you look at how much they hate someone like Justin Trudeau, which I think is probably one of the most public examples of a guy who like pivoted well and, and is now positioned himself in a way he's maintained his status on top while making most people happy. Oh well, up until recently, he is the what's what's the, he's like the, the he's the perfect white guy basically. That's what that's the best that the white guys can produce would be like a Justin Trudeau, culturally speaking. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm Canadian, so I remember when he was pretty much like a nobody, just just almost like a fail son. He would <laughs> drift from job to job. I think he was like a teacher, then he worked as like an actor, then he was like did some like ski, like ran a ski store. So he's the and John F. Suddenly, Kennedy Jr. of of Canada, basically. Yeah, like or or W something like that, and then now and then suddenly after Trump, he was like the the leader of the free world for for a while, and then now I think it's come apart a bit. But yeah, that's like they they hate that guy. I mean, the alt right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's like the guy that that uh, managed to be more nimble than they were. Yeah, now the feminists hate him too. So were they onto something? You know, <laughs> I mean, they might have been onto something there. Wait, the feminists hate him now? What what did he do? Oh, because he's a complete. Yeah. He's a joke. Yo, dude, that that guy has some some Weinstein moments in his past. I guarantee you that, like, for sure, he has to. Yeah. Like, oh, there a, is no doubt like in a, my like mind. a good looking son of a of a politician. Come on, like, you gotta. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was he was ingratiating. Uh, I mean, I remember like listening to stuff he was talking about. Uh, you know, he loves. He knows women love him. So he was. <laughs> so he was like pandering. I'd I'd say it's actually like spineless pandering, and it was really condescending. Yeah, he never he never really did it for me. Yeah, after his recent trip to India, I think the the depths of his narcissism <laughs> were, were revealed. Yeah, and uh, these Indian people were so funny on Twitter. They were just like, "Dude, <laughs> I'm Indian," and he, they were like, "I'm a wedding, I'm an Indian wedding coordinator, and I feel like you're overdressed." <laughs> uh, all right, uh, laying off poor Justin for a while. One of the points that um, Nagel makes in her book is that I mean, I hate using this term, you know, SJW, just because of the kind of people who use it a lot. But one of her points she makes is that they overreached. Um, and as you pointed out, Teen, earlier, like like the Tumblr culture that became quite big and kind of somewhere probably like early, like earlier this decade, that spawned the backlash that became things like Gamergate, even like the Ron Paul movement. So, I mean, what do you guys think? Do you think that there is there was an overreach? And is there does there need to be a correction? By the left then, right? The The vanguard of the left. Yeah, like like the tw like the people you a lot of people you see on Twitter, for example. I wouldn't say it's an overreach, but I would say it's a chaotic movement that also has no ideological core, and it's being dishonest about its motives and its end goals. So there hasn't there I think they have the, the left has seen a huge surge in influence and power. I think you'd have to be blind and deaf to not see that there has been a lot of change due to at social agitation but i don't think there's been a reckoning that any gains have been made and that's where it becomes cynical because then it makes it pretty clear that this is all this all boils down to a power grab and i think they were not honest about that they're always still the victim they're always still at the complete bottom nothing has changed everything is bad you know all of these uh like the patriarchy white people uh all of that 
evil, 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 and there was there's no sense of proportion. So any every infraction against the code uh, of the left was met with practically the same amount of retribution. Yeah, one of the good points she raises is that uh, if you think of uh, like wokeness as a currency on social media, it became grossly inflated you know, very quickly. So if you wanted to, so essentially what a lot of the, the crazy stuff you see on Twitter in which every single little uh, misstep is blown out of proportion and called out is, is an attempt to create scarcity again, where, okay, like too, like too many people are getting credit for being woke. I got to be more woker. And the way to do that is to keep denigrating these people for not, not being aware enough or, or like, oh, you may be all this and this, but now you're ableist or now, oh yeah. So it just keeps going on and on to a point of where it, the, the space becomes so tiny for the people who are actually deemed righteous. And there is no way to actually win or to just have firm footing. You're probably transgressing against someone somewhere. The rules aren't going to be spelled out. Just if you're a good person, you wouldn't have done that. And that turns into a, that turns rather repressive and scary. In these spaces, though, I mean, I don't think that there's necessarily a risk that this is going to spill over into mainstream society. I think the extreme, the rhetoric of the extreme left is so fractured that it's never going to be able to make its way into any sort of coherent, you know, unified platform and message anyway. I mean, basically, they don't run the risk of turning into a white nationalist movement, the, the equivalent of one, because they can't they can't get their shit on board with a single message. Though I think I think that it They're all held funnels in check up. by the number of stakeholders they've they've created. Right. And in that sense, you know, I'll always be on the left. Right. I'm never going to be on the right because there's more of a checks and balances built in to the left. Well, I think that they I think what we're seeing, though, is the power struggle you know, being done in public where we see it on Tumblr. We see it in campus uh, gr groups sending letters threatening this speaker or whatever. But I think ultimately what it is is a, is basically like the sort of like politic the political game of getting to the perch that does unify the left, which is I think femi is the mainstream feminist movement. I think a lot of this stuff is trying to filter up to the leadership positions within the fe in, in sort of mainstream feminism. And I do think that the, the the basic issue here ultimately does, it does have to do, I don't want to subordinate race, but I think it does have to do with a, a gender battle between white people. It's white feminism and white, white male, white masculine movements. So I think race is, it's hard to say whether race is driving this or not driving this versus gender. But it's it is white intersectional. I think it it is it is about white men versus white women. We saw a lot of that in the Democratic primary in 2015, 2016. I mean, there obviously there are other divides more on the economic front, but I, I did see a lot of social divide, and it seemed to be like uh, like the strongest Hillary supporters were you know very accomplished women, um, you know young and old, very like professional, and and the, the people they hated the most it seemed on on the kind of the Bernie side were. Guys they felt were kind of like slackerish, not as, uh, you know, accomplished or educated as they were. And, and you saw that. It, it, to me, and I think it's still uh, carrying on. I, I think of it as kind of like a white civil war. And I, I simply just want to step away. On gender like, lines? Oh, okay. is, is the front line uh, gender? or? Uh, well, because there's a lot of crossover, too, because uh, you see a lot of uh, women on, on the, like on the social democratic side as well. But just, just when you when you pull out a bit, it does seem like, for example, if you go to Jezebel and you look at all the comments, they're fiercely pro-Hillary, which sometimes like wouldn't strike me as uh, intuitive just based on the kind of stuff they write. I would I thought maybe they would be more on the, you know, anti-establishment, anti-democratic side. But yeah, but but um, I, I from what I've seen, most of their comments, they're very, very pro-Hillary. Pro yeah. yeah. And Not I think surprising. that is based on the gender. Yeah. The, the kind of people who go... Uh, you know, write for Jezebel and, and go into like mainstream media. That seems to be their their group. I think the question for people now, it, the way to I th the way I think of it now is for every group out there, black black men and women, Asian men and women, you know, whatever, and or, or go by political group or whatever groups you have. If you're navigating like modern like modern American social politics. And as that spills over into other things, the mainstream politics as well, I think the big question is, which camp do you fall in? The white men or the white women? 
I think that I think right now that's what we're seeing play out at a grand scale. I think Me Too is a shot across the bow primarily from white women against primarily white men. Um, the most vicious digs, the most the most vicious accusations are all within, are all in and among white people. And in a way, it's almost like, you know, if you say that this country is ruled by white people, it's almost like the parents of the country are having a huge, huge fight um, <laughs> that's going to result possibly in divorce, right? And, you know, it, it's where everyone else is caught up in that. But I don't see, for example, that the that Asians are having quite the – like, we talk a lot about the Asian gender split. I don't think it's quite at the level – of the gender split that we've that we're seeing with white people, same thing with black with the black community. I don't think blacks are experiencing anywhere near the gender as the well. White the community. the magnitude is certainly incomparable because just because our and the viciousness, the viciousness so with which you see white women straight up, you know, explicitly attacking white men. They use the term white man. I rarely see. Now I know I know people will disagree. Say, I see it all the time. I don't see it to that level where it's making. People are, you know, I, I don't see black women attacking black men in that same way. When you compare Asians to whites, I think it's like when white men and white women fight, it's like two nuclear nations fighting each other. Whereas when Asian men and Asian women fight, it's like people in the like m- medieval times <laughs> were like fighting with swords. It's it can be just as vicious, but the the magnitude is not at at the level of of that mat kind of. There's still affection there. Have. I think there's still affection between Asian men and Asian women to say we have our differences, but both sides are like, we need to work this shit out. More than white men and white women? I don't know. I don't know if I'd agree with that. What more? You think white men and white women are w- willing to work this shit out? I think everyone else but white people are incentivized to work this shit out. Exactly. White white women are like, fuck it. We'll just take the entire country. They don't. They only have to worry about one variable, right? Gender. Everyone else is is penned in. Well, by white people, honestly. Because what are you fighting uh, over? You're fighting over the gender. crown jewels of whiteness, right? If you fight over the crown jewels of being Asian, what do you have? Nothing. If you fight over the crown jewels of being white, you own the country. And that was Hillary versus Trump. It's not like white women are all, all becoming nuns and, and just, just just throwing all these men on the off on the island. They'll still associate with them. And maybe they want them to be more subordinate, but they're not. Because you like, when you compare it to Asians, like, like Asians have... The opportunity to completely racially uh, opt out of their own group, right? Whereas white people, they're kind of stuck because they're at the top. They're not. There's nowhere else to go unless like some superior alien force comes, I guess. But they have to. That I think that's the thing that forces them to deal with each other. Because that unless you want to be totally like uh you know live in a monastery somewhere or just um, limit your social life, you do have to. Um, yeah, but you're gonna have to choose sides. You see, I think that. You know, for a white man, you're going to have to face this really stark, this stark decision, like, as especially the more public you become, right, or, or whatever, like, the more influential you want to become. I think you're going to have to face, you know, if you want to become a, a, quote, feminist-friendly guy, you're going to have to put up with a lot of other white men calling you a, a, a sellout and a traitor and a mangina and a cuckservative and all this stuff. So Yeah, but those men, you're not, like, those are, that's a different tribe, though, right? No, that's white though. But that's what I'm saying is like with it as just be, with even, within the goal of within the world of whiteness that you know white masculinity and white femininity are pulling apart they're 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 pulling apart. And the people, white people are going to be caught in the middle of that and it's going to be tough. I think it's going to be tough for white relationships to form and it's going to be tough for them to be stable. It's going to be tough for a white man to it's going to be tough for a white man to um to be uh, you know, to to both be with a white woman and not for one of them to betray their own side, which is why well, which is why I think we've seen the rise of interracial relationships for like progressive men. That's their way of of uh, kind of like really, really, I guess um, maintaining some form of social power. I think so. Yeah, where w- yeah. when they feel squeezed by by white Ivanka women, whereas white with, women don't. Ivanka ha- with uh, with uh, Jared. Right, like the white nationalists, alt right or whatever, hate that. Remember that guy, the 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 crying alt right guy in, in Charlottesville, Christopher Cantwell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was truly, truly, you know, dismayed by that wo- that beautiful woman. He said, being given away by her father to a Jew, a globalist. But it's much more common the other way around. I don't see a lot of like white women who are tired of white men. Therefore, they're gonna go start being with 
uh, minority I don't, men. It doesn't. What what happened when they wrote that, much. The, well, that that story, Cat Person, and the and the level of 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 virality that that story got, I think, signaled something that showed that white women were not feeling white men anymore. They're just not feeling. Yeah, white. but they got. But my point is they got nowhere else to go unless they radically change. But okay, they don't have anywhere to go. But I'm saying like that's still the problem. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's an, Maybe it's an unresolvable thing, but it's just like, you know, I think that's the reality. The the the, the level of people reacting to Cat Person. And I read Cat Person and I was like, I, I guess, you know what? Like, I, I guess there is something to this concept of patriarchy. I haven't heard a great definition of it. Um, I've heard many definitions of it, let's say, but I feel like instead of something formally defined, it's a feeling. And I feel like what it is, is we live in a time where men are basically not, I mean, we're needed as people, but there's nothing unique about the man. There's no, you know, there's no competitive advantage that we have that's necessary anymore. Yet we still occupy this sort of like dominant male social position and it's making women feel cringy about it. There's this feeling of like, why do you still act like a man if you're not an if you're not a man? You know, uh, and I feel like Cat Person was like that. Like that guy, just you know, there was just something emasculated about him that was both a cause of it made the it made the girl both like she wishes it was there, but it's not there. Just did you read that story? Yeah, I did. Um, you know, after I took a series of very hot showers to scrub all of that off, uh, I think I've come to the conclusion, I mean, this is, this is a critique of that entire, like, red pill pickup artist culture thing going on, where it's, it ultimately boils down to wanting to emulate what being a man is while not having to deal with any other responsibilities this guy's trying to trying to act like a man and completely is not one and that's where the creep factor comes in because it's about how long can he keep how long can he fool her into thinking he should be respected as a man treated like a man but is a complete for lack of a better word bitch there's a there's this wall of performative masculinity i think that separates men like that and women like her and the performative masculinity i think at a certain point in the past, it was at least a good performance, even if, right, even if it was full of shit. But now I feel like it's it's just like watching a really bad play. It's like watching a, a like a cringely bad. It's like watching. Uh, maybe that's why people loved the uh, the the what was that uh, the disaster artist or whatever, uh, the room. It's this. It captures this feeling of like. Someone trying to perform being a man and be and it being a complete disaster, and that I thought was cat person was like real life the room, you know. Teen, this is why I keep saying you should read uh, that book I gave you, Love Affairs of Nathaniel P. Like, mm. like you read that book, and there's like I when I after I read Cat Person, I was uh, wow. First of all, I knew it was like oh man, so many dudes are gonna be pissed off about this story. I and I just instinctively felt that. But if you read that book, you can you can see the trace this this kind of like feminine dissatisfaction with which is like men and a lot of these guys they don't seem that they're they're not like trp guys they're not thinking oh yeah you know field report you know i'm I, like I'm, i got you know 20 lays or whatever they're not like that they're, they're almost like inoffensive guys yet these women are so angered by them and then uh, you read these things and you get a better sense of, of why that is yeah well here's what yeah. it is it's trying to fool women into giving it's about trying to have your cake and eat it too if you're if you're trying to put on the trappings of masculinity, there's still some there's a sacrifice and responsibility involved in putting that that uh, that image on, right? That you will provide, you will be prote- you will be her protector, you will be able to oh, be see, a leader and a guide, um, you'll be able to provide, right, for her and and you know your fa- the family that you create with her, right? That's what you're trying to put on. That's what you're trying to project with this image of masculinity, right? But in reality, what they're trying to do is just bamboozle, right? They want to draw these women in with that implicit promise, uh, but not give any of it. So it's always it's always struck me as really selfish. Uh, I mean, I won't blame them for being selfish. We're all trying to get what we can. 
but it's hollow. They're taking exactly their rhetoric about you know reclaiming masculinity is exact stops exactly at how much can I get from these women and how little do I have to give in return? But I, I have a question for you as for you as a woman, which is if you if you take the if you take that story cat person, what okay what is it that she wants? Does she want him to live up? Does she does she wish that she he was a real quote man that could that could act like that and 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 it would it would be real or does she wish that she was just he would just drop the facade and admit to being the guy who he really is which is kind of like a fail son like are, are, i guess the question is are women mourning the loss of that masculinity the reality of it uh i'd say i'd say yeah i'd say yeah um because of that promise right you could sacrifice something as a woman, but in exchange for that, like you do, and uh, you do gain quite a bit in that exchange, or you're promised quite a bit. Let's call it a complimentary exchange, at least. Here now, it's both parties trying to get what they can and give nothing in return. So it's so you're still having to serve and be submissive to this vision of masculinity while not actually getting any of the benefits. So that's not a trade worth making. Right, but they still, but women still want the trade. They still want to trade. They just wish that there was a trade to make, and it wasn't just bullshit, right? Yeah, I think yeah. that's the or, crisis. I mean, it's just it way, boils down right? to pick a lane, pick a fucking lane, right? You want to be a traditional provider and a man, uh, do that, but don't come back and bitch about you know your stay-at-home wife ha- uh, is asking for for some money for support after you after you walk out on her, right? That was the trade you made. Right. And on the other hand, and if you don't want that, if you don't want to uphold that, you know, that image of, of masculinity, go go your own way. But don't demand that you be treated with the exact same privileges and benefits that were that were societally allotted to that group of men that were willing to, you know, uh, take on that risk and responsibility in quote being a man i think the difficult thing is just to even talk about it as a series of exchanges is i think it opens up uh this you know like like the patriarchal like mating market ideas i think a lot of women just don't want because like the people who will make the kind of argument that oh the man gives you know commitment and time and the women give up you know sex and beauty that's that's like something that i i think we've a lot has happened in the past and they don't want to open that door again so then you can't talk about that, but you have to talk about the reality in which there is an exchange going on. But then you can't talk about it in that in those terms. So you, you like it's it's it just gets hard to talk about. And and Jess, you talked about men um, benefiting from those, but I think what's hard is that a lot of those are passive benefits. I think of something like uh, you just think about something like the biological clock and just how society treats aging, where like a guy can just kind of dick around and have casual sex for a while, and he can like mature later than most women can if they if they want to have a family and all that so those benefits they're very hard to get rid of and even if even if you're uh like a good guy and and you, you can't just renounce those right even if you wanted to i'm not sure how you would do that so i it's i think that's why you, you get stuck in a stalemate that that's mgtow right men going their own way it's like a whole little subculture that nagel uh I think in a way that the MGTOW thing is it, it, they're in a way finding I, I have a certain soft spot for them because I feel like they have in a way found or confronted one of the real paradoxes here or one of the real contradictions here saying this is unresolvable. Men just need to go their own way. Just like you said, you didn't go your own way because the reason I think is not because men here. I am a little bit more sympathetic to men than you are, which is that. I don't think it's that easy for men to just say, oh, I'm going to be the breadwinner now. Because if we could do that very easily, we would. I think that with, if you look at the trends, you know, it, the, the society is actually getting a, li- a lot more difficult for men. We do, as boys, we do worse in school. Um, we, we get to higher education at lesser rates. And when we get there, we graduate at lower rates. The society in general has just become... It doesn't really need, I feel, like a lot of the traits of men and whatever those are. I don't know the thing, but I know that just sort of outcome wise, men are not doing as well. And that I think is a result of changes in society. I think it's a result of sort of capitalist modern culture where 
you know, I just don't feel like men are encouraged to take the lead in things um, because they're not needed. You don't need a man necessarily to take that lead. And this idea that we would promote men because they're men is anathema to all of our ethics. So I I feel like there does, for from my side, looking at cat person and other stuff like that, you know, I feel like something that needs to be addressed is that you do kind of need to start wondering, should men just drop this act altogether and kind of redefine the role of mass, you know, of men, of masculinity in a culture that no longer really needs the larger body size and the more aggressive or all the stereotypical um, uniquely male traits uh, are men are men going to be rewarded for dropping the uh, the aspiration towards those kinds of things for for dropping the whole basically men acting more like women which actually I see all around me now in this in New York um, men are becoming more feminine I would say the answer to that is yes yes like that that that, re- they should re- be, that should happen that that does need to happen. There's a, I mean, there's a, there's a social reality, right? In less than a generation's time, we're going to have more college educated, uh, higher earning women than men. All right. The scales are just simply going to tip based on the numbers we have right now. We could change that tomorrow and that still wouldn't change what's going to happen when we head into, you know, our middle years, right? When the next batch of kids hits their, uh, 20s, um, women are going to be out earning men by a sizable margin in industries that largely that men don't naturally find themselves in, I think, and rewarding skills that men aren't traditionally valued for. I, I my, my little hook, I think this is where you hook the Asian American because we're, we're pretty far into this podcast, but I think this is where you can hook in, I think, Asian American point of view here, because traditionally the big, the big thing about Asian guys is we're seen as feminine um, where, you know, look at our history in America, we, we cook and we wash, we wash clothes, right? We were launderers and restaurant owners, all this stuff. There's been this long history of like us trying to fight this image of feminine, being feminized and whatever. And I think in a way that pushing back against that right now is a little bit short-sighted. I'm not saying that we're all cooks and cleaners that we should aspire to be, but I'm just saying that I do think, and it's a tough thing to say because it's, you know, no guy really wants to hear this, but I would say that in a way they kind of want to embrace that sort of like less testosterone fueled stereotype or not embrace it, but not fight against like, don't let fighting against that stereotype define you. And I think you do see Asian guys out there that are sort of like overcompensating in a way by defining masculinity as resisting Western stereotypes of feminization and all this stuff. Uh, I would say that if you, if you look a little bit, if you if you if you think of this game in a little bit longer terms actually the the, ne- the mas- american masculinity needs to move more towards what it what it conceptualizes as asian american male masculinity it needs to quote feminize itself uh in its own eyes i don't see that as feminine but that it needs to feminize itself but i think what makes it potentially easier for asian american men is that we haven't We've never known what it was like to to like be the man because we don't really know the stories of our dads or grandfathers, really. As far as we've known, this is we've always kind of been on the low. So in a way, if we can learn to use this new model of masculinity to actually move up, I think that for us is, is a progressive narrative. Whereas I think of myself as potentially a young white guy and I'm thinking, like, what is my lot in life? Like if we all have if we all have like a heroic fable we make for ourselves if you're a white guy what is your destiny and it seems like your destiny is to continually and good naturedly seed ground to other people and not make too much of a fuss about it because and and you look and i think what happens is you look at your dad and your grandfathers and your great great grandfathers and you think man they had it really good and i know they had it good because well at least they watch movies or hear stories about it um and because they have that past to cling to i think it's harder for them to turn this like like what you might call feminization into a heroic tale that I think Asian American guys have a much easier time to do it because as I said we've really got nothing to lose we never knew what it was like to be the man in America I, yeah, well I'll tell you also go I agree with that but I would take it even a step further to say that in fact I would say that Asian culture itself generally does not project 
has never, or, or I would say actually the odd one out is actually American culture. American culture starting at some point, I can't, I don't know when, but it was probably sometime, maybe like let's say the 80s or something. I feel like it started to project this sort of ridiculous, you know, this absolutely ridiculous vision of masculinity. And I've said this before, like I've always found American masculinity to be a caricature. And I've always felt like Asian culture had produced much more nuanced depictions of men and women and how they interact. It didn't abandon the idea of masculinity. It didn't collapse it into meaninglessness. And I think that's kind of where America's being fucked right now is like we're, we're losing all meaning of difference between men and women, which is why we see this absolute, you know, uh, fracture of even the concept of gender into you know, all these different subgenders, non-binary genders or whatever. We've lost meaning in terms of gender. I feel like Asian culture does have a more nuanced vision of it. And it's also unequal. It's not saying that the genders are equivalent. Uh, and I do think that you will see more... Uh, I, th I think you will see more American women become look towards Asia, Asian culture as a source of redefined masculinity, which is interesting because actually that's what the alt-right is doing. Here's a funny point. Um, so growing up watching hockey, uh, Canadians had a very, that kind of American mindset towards European players, uh, believe it or not. So the Canadians always prided themselves on being tough and manly. They liked to hit. They were, uh, you know, they, they were rough and everything. And the stereotype of any player that came out of Europe, except for maybe Russia, but even, even the Russians, was that they're very effete. They're, they're more uh, concerned about looking good. They don't want to get their hands dirty. So, yeah, it is. I think there is something distinctly North American that also bled over to Canada because, you know, Canada ends up copying America on a lot of things. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's and it can be it can be messed up where you think like some some big Swedish guy is actually a pussy. <laughs> yeah. No, so my my thing right now for my advice to Asian guys is do not chase the ideals of American masculinity because those things are fucking obsolete. Uh, totally obsolete. Yeah. To I mean, chase that is to is is to like buy into a bubble. I just forget it. Yeah, it's like moral, morally wrong, but in case you're being completely pragmatic, it's also, you know, it's heydays over. You're, heydays you're right. <laughs> over, man. You know, you're going to end yeah. up like that guy in Cat Person. Oxford, I think uh, I think you touched on that in your girls article. Like, exactly. That's that's what they're, I think, the signal of what, what um, I think it's not a fluke that Asian men are being uh, represented in a very specific way in these female-centered uh, shows. And I think it's exactly that. It's latching onto a, a different model of gender relations than the one... Uh, I mean, these shows are all... Uh, they're all uh, feminist in tone, progressive, depicting the lives of a certain bunch of young, educated, urbane women. And this is this is that signal that they're putting that they're putting down here. Yeah, and don't, don't I just don't want Asian guys to adopt the the way that white guys hold their nose up at anything you know feminine. You know, they 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 there's they they do define themselves by their unwillingness to engage in feminine stuff. I'm not saying like all Asian men don't do that shit too. I'm just saying that you know you don't want to you don't want to just adopt wholesale the definitions of what white men think are is uh, too feminine to consider. Right. In terms of, say, what you read or what you watch. Uh, I think that, for example, the I do I, like white guys just fucking hate the show girls. They just they just hate it. They hold their nose up at it. It's almost like a thing that you got to do as a white guy is there's certain cultural things that you got to hate. It's the bro code, a bro culture, a bro code. Yeah, exactly. I Asian men cannot adopt that shit. It is not compatible with the I think that the the types of Asian inflected masculinity that are going to become more relevant, that are becoming more relevant with time. Yeah, and I think we've observed this, and especially the Reddit. Even the guys who you think might be susceptible to this, they do get a sense that this is not for them, mainly because of the Asian fetish. <laughs> they know that they're not welcome. Right, right. Here's what I see. It's a last gasp right now to cling to that archaic uh, uh, 
bro code of masculinity. I'm just going to I'm going to talk about nerd culture for a second, right? Silicon Valley, right? So about 10 years ago is about I guess the heyday, right? Of Silicon Valley. Right now we're in a bit of a dip. Uh and I distinctly recall what people looked like in that scene then. This is when people were pretty darn proud of not fitting into that mainstream vision of what uh, men and women were supposed to do, look like, be, etc. Right? The whole code of disrupting, redefining the way society does things. And this re- this was reflected in, the, in how people looked, honestly. Scrawny, skinny nerds running around uh, scoring billion dollar deals. That was that was the norm for that time, and that was validation. And now you see a bit of a slump. People are a little nervous, and now you see these nerds hitting the gym, getting swole, uh, dressing uh, <laughs> dressing a little bit more polished, things like that. So I I see that as kind of it's a signal of nervousness and anxiety. You could see that in one man. You, you could see that in Jeff Bezos. Like what you described there was the recent tr- physical transformation and stylistic transformation of Jeff Bezos. Have you seen yeah. him? He's like jacked. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I and saw yeah. him on the cover of the New York Times. Yeah. He, uh, he looks like, uh, like Kevin Spacey, you know, his Luther. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lex Luther. Yeah, he he looks like that. He does. <laughs> yeah. Yo, Jess, I'm sure you've heard this old tech joke, but it's like, you, do you know when a tech firm is about to tank? It's when all the pretty people move in. <laughs> yeah it's men and women kind of re- clinging to what they believe to be uh codified norms that promise you know security and and privilege it's clinging to that in the hopes that it'll get them that sort of return but in a context that it's it's not going to happen in We're this not going in, back to that time i think again. i think you're right and i think in that in this milieu women have the advantage because women are saddled with uh, an obsolete gender role that they don't want. At, at least a lot of them don't want. I think maybe there is some tension there between men, uh, be, within women, within the feminist movement, as to what aspects of femininity they want to hold on to and which, what they don't. But I think for the most part, women are more than happy to drop a lot of that shit. Men don't want to lose it. And I think that's the problem right now is like you have, I think gender roles are probably in some way largely driven by social necessity. That's social. That's the social necessity is changing faster than we can adapt. Women are adapting faster. Men are clinging on to that the old shit. They don't want to let it go because they're afraid of what's going to happen. We feel we. It's almost. We feel like man. We've had it. We we've had it so good that you know it's inevitably going to get worse for us. I think we need to challenge that because I don't actually think men had it that good in a way. I mean, yes, we held power and all that stuff. I'm saying I don't think it was good for us. I don't think it was good for us as human beings, as individuals. No, it's not. I mean, there was. A, I mean, there was that study. Uh, I think it was out recently, like in the last year or two. Like uh, single breadwinner men, they died earlier. They led shitty. They led shittier lives. They had heart disease. <laughs> yeah, um, it's not. It's uh, it's not good for you. So I think we have to lose that. And number two, it's not swapping places. You're not going to become, uh, you know, a Stepford wife. By changing. We don't know exactly what it's going to be, but it's not It's not just swapping places. Like, this vision of gender swap is not what's going to happen either. You know, and I think if you do go to, to societies that are a little bit more on the cutting edge of, of, of accepting gender change, uh, gender role uh, shift, if you go to, like, Denmark, yo, the guys there are pretty happy <laughs> with the way things turned out. Uh, their lives are a lot easier and, the you know, the men and women get along better. There's still a distinction between men and women that is totally understandable to us. Um, but I think if you, you know, if you embrace the change, a lot of the stuff that men fear, I think it's just clinging on to shit for no reason. But I think there has to, it has to be put out there a little bit more. It's, it's actually, we're not changing history really with this new, uh, set of conditions we're actually going back to what it was for the bulk of human history right women have it's there's the aberration was the 50s right when middle when a society was so wealthy that even 
that even middle-class women, like exactly half of the adult population of a society, could be exempt from participation in the economy. That's the aberration. There's never been a time before or since where half the adult population could be exempt from economically productive work. That, you know, that's exactly what Oxford's thing about um, European uh, players being a feat. You know, same shit with Asians. Asians are Asian men are like sissies and whatever. I'm like, dude, don't, don't worry about that because I think Asian masculinity is defined by a much longer process. It's le- less aberrational. That may be changing in those places, but the ones that you know, the ones that the conception of it that I have, um, it, it's subject to the same sort of like dissing that European masculinity had, but it's actually a product of a much longer. Uh, and less aberrational uh, uh, a negotiation between the genders. Yeah. All right. Should we should we wrap it up? Yeah. Soon? Sure. All right. I got, we, I got my hair appointment. You know, I gotta I gotta look as fabulous as Al. You know, with his great yeah. hair. <laughs> you gotta represent, yeah. man. Co- Koreans have good hair. Thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Escape from Plan A. Uh, please make sure to subscribe to us and like us and do all that shit. And we'll keep uh, pumping out new episodes every week. So goodbye from all of us.